All right, our scripture reading today comes from Genesis 2, 4 through 25. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there, it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from the land is pure. Delium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gahan, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird in the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. Before the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Rebecca, for reading that. This fall, well, first let me say, my name's Eric, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you, um, hello and welcome to Trinity. It is good to be with all of you this morning. Uh, This fall, we're in a teaching series. We are looking at the very beginning of the Bible. We're looking at the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis, and we're calling it Prologue. Prologue, what is that? It's the opening of a story right? It's, it's the, the stuff that comes before the story that sets the context for everything else that follows. So if you skip the prologue, if you miss the prologue, things don't make sense. It provides the backdrop for the meaning and the flow of the rest of the story. Genesis 1 through 11 is that prologue. It's the prologue that sets the context for everything else in the story of the Bible and everything else in the stories of our own lives. When we feel lost, which we do sometimes, when we feel confused in our own stories, when we're trying to make sense 
uh, of the Bible, of what it teaches and how to live it out when things are difficult, when uh, things are confusing in our culture about what is right, what is wrong, what's a human being, what's meaningful, what is life meant to be like. This prologue is where we need to start. This prologue is where we need to come back to time and time again, and that's what we're doing this fall. So this morning, as we just heard read, we're coming uh, to a very unique part of the Bible story. There is nothing like what we just heard read anywhere else in the entire Bible. Genesis 2, verses 4 through 25. Those verses, that passage, in there we have something unique. We have the only description in the Bible of human life before the entrance of sin and the curse and death, before disobedience entered into the picture and all the ways that life unraveled because of it. So we can call this chapter, as I'm calling this message, Life in Paradise. There's only 24 verses-ish, even, even less really, of this description of what the Bible says life in paradise was like. But even though it's short, there is a lot here for us to look at. So this message this morning is going to be kind of a survey message. We're going to look at the whole picture. And in some of these specifics, we're going to take other messages and sermons to dig into the specifics, like work and marriage and sexuality. Those will be separate messages. Today, we're going to look at the big picture. What is paradise? What is a fully flourishing, a fully human life according to the Bible? So to start things off this morning, I'd like to ask all of you, and you have to do this, you have to, you have to play along with me here. What is your picture of paradise? Just go ahead and close your eyes and go there for a moment. Envision it. Picture it. What is it for you? I know for someone here, it might be something like this. Eating in and out for every single meal from now until eternity. Or maybe it's like Oktoberfest every night, right? Maybe you pictured like getting a home on the beach in Corona del Mar or Laguna Beach, right? And that's your place. You're just looking out at the ocean, the beauty. Or maybe you pictured winning the lottery and you never ever have to work again. Or maybe it was reaching the top of your game athletically or academically or in your career and in the pursuit of success. But really, I want you to think about what is it? What is it for you? It's interesting, I think, that we all, every person, though we have different pictures, probably very different pictures of what our own personal paradise would be, we're all able to envision, to have this concept and idea of life as it should be, life that is whole and complete, even though nobody here has ever experienced that fully. But we can, we can imagine it. We can picture it. We all have this feeling, this gut sense, 
that now, you know, things are not the way they're supposed to be. This is not paradise, but we can envision what paradise would be. It's like a feeling that we've lost something and we want to get it back. We want to go back. If you'd open up your uh, bulletin to page one, I want to read one of these more lengthy quotes from one of my favorite professors that I had in seminary, Bruce Waltke. Here's what he says about paradise, about this chapter in the Bible. Paradise, a place without pain, without suffering, a time when love and peace flourish. Paradise has been the object of hopes and dreams for every generation within the bosom of every person who experiences pain, injustice, or the death of a loved one. There aches the longing for a place of wholeness, thirst for a time of healing. This is rooted in the essence of humanity. We are beings who do not accept the world as it is. Something in our instinct, in our collective consciousness, tells us the world at present is out of sync. There has to be a better time a better place. This passage tells us there was and that there will be. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at these three points with you this morning. Life in paradise, life here and now, and then talk about life eternal. So first, life in paradise. The Bible offers us here At the beginning, in this one chapter, this comprehensive view of human flourishing, of life as it should be, as God designed and intended it to be for us. And everything after this, as I've already said, is tainted, it's corrupted, it's broken by sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way God intended it to be. So what I want to do first is walk through this chapter with you and paint this picture. What is it? What is life? as God intended it to be. What is paradise? As I studied it this week, what stood out to me is how in this one chapter, it gives us such a beautifully complex but comprehensive and complete picture of life as it should be. What sets apart the Bible's anthropology or its its take, its teaching on what it means to be a human being is how wonderfully complete it is, how The Bible refuses to reduce it down to one aspect of life or break things apart and separate things that belong together as a whole. So I hope you see that as we look at these. So uh, in chapter 2, what we have here, Genesis chapter 2, we have a more detailed account of God's creation of humanity than we had in chapter 1, which was very brief. God said, let us make man in, in our image. And here we get the details. I want to look at six aspects of life in paradise with you. First, I'm going to call it personhood. This is kind of the beginning of understanding what does it mean to be a fully human person, a fully human being, to to flourish in life. First, we have to understand what that even means. What does it mean to be a human person? What is personhood? Let's look at verse 7. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground. This is a beautiful image. Everything else in chapter 1, God created by his word, which is a powerful thing, a powerful picture. And God said, and it was so. And the universe as we know it 
came into existence. Great power. We can barely even fathom that. But here in creating man, it's different. It's very different. It's very personal. It's very close. It's very intimate. The word formed here is a word that's often used in Scripture for a potter, a potter who is shaping his, his, his pottery, his clay. And it carries a sense of design, of artistry, of this hands-on care that God took when he created humanity. And what we're meant to take away, at least as a basic observation, is when God creates humanity, he's taking special care to shape us exactly how he wants us to be. The rest of the Bible picks up on this in different places. One of those is Isaiah chapter 45, 9. Actually, I think it's 20, 25, 9. I have it wrong in my notes. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says. He says, Woe to the one who argues with his maker. One clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, What are you making? Isaiah's thinking about this text. That if it's God who formed us and designed us and molded us to be a person, to be fully human, is to remember we are formed, we are shaped, we are molded by Him. We don't form our identity. We don't in ourselves know what paradise even is for us. But God does. He is the potter. There's something else really important here when it comes to the Bible's teaching on human flourishing. If you look at the end of verse 7, at the conclusion, so to speak, it says, okay, now, so now, the man is a living being. Some translations say a living creature. I think living being is the best translation. What it's saying is now, this creature is a person like God in the image of God. How? Well, it tells us here that we are filled with the very breath of life from God himself. The breath of life from this one who spoke all life into existence. And so humanity is elevated. What more dignity could we have than to have the breath of life from God himself breathe into us? But to be human, it says, is also to be made of dust. Unlike God. Very unlike God. So we are elevated we are also humbled in this passage. Uh, the name here, some of you have this name, some wonderful human beings here have the name Adam. Good name. Uh, in, in the Hebrew, it's, it's a name, but it's also the name in kind of a generic sense for all of humanity, Adam. And the word for dirt or earth is the word Adama. Obviously, a close connection. We have the word human, which is related to the word hummus, or dirt, earth. Here in this depiction of how God crafted human beings, we are made, we are connected to the earth. We are very humble in our beginnings. And yet, even in that humility, God takes the man and breathes the very breath of life into him. So we are ground and we are spirit. We are body and soul. You can make an argument between both of these phrases that a human being is an embodied soul 
Or is a human being a soul-animated body? It's inseparable. They both go together. This is who we are. We are not fully human apart from both. And this is what I'm saying about the beautifully complex and comprehensive picture of what it means to be a human being. We are not mainly spirits who have bodies. No, that is not what this teaches. Paradise for us, then, is not escaping our bodies or the physical world. Our bodies are shaped by the potter. Jesus bodily rose from the dead as the first fruits of the recovery of paradise. Our bodies matter. But we are not only our bodies either. Paradise is not following the urges and the desires of our bodies, wherever they might take us, as if it has no effect on our souls and who we are. What we do with our bodies is connected to our very being and personhood, which is why in Romans 12, in that great letter, at the turning point in that letter where Paul is teaching the implications of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as your act of worship. We are a psychosomatic or a soul-body unity. It's important for all kinds of things, just a few, and considering our sexuality, they must be held together, body and soul. To unite a body is to unite a soul. That is what is taught in 1 Corinthians 6. You cannot separate those things. In considering how to love our neighbor, we can't say we only care about the spiritual destiny of people and not their physical bodies, not their actual needs and their suffering. And how we think about and use our technology, which for all the good that it offers us, also offers us a way to be kind of disembodied. We need to think about how that affects our personhood, and we could go on. But paradise begins with knowing what it means to be a person with personhood and how we are formed by God, body and soul. Secondly, place. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he placed the man he had formed. And many of you, maybe all of you, most of you said, when I, when I said picture paradise, you pictured some place. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know who pictured a dark blank nothingness or like a foggy cloud or something. I don't think anybody pictured that. You pictured your happy place, maybe like a beautiful beach or a mountain retreat or a river or a lake or something like that. And Genesis 2 is telling us this is what we should picture. God himself planted a garden. God not only made the whole earth, he made a home for humanity. Eden was one place in the entire earth. It was a home for humanity, a place that was designed for them to live in and thrive in and flourish. There's a great book, it's called Becoming Whole by theologian Kelly Capich and Brian Fickert, a director of the Chalmers Center. Um, there's a chapter in that book that is titled, You Can Be a Harp-Playing Ghost Forever. It's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek title that's describing one of the false stories we believe often that misses the full picture of Scripture, that God created us, our destiny is to be an invisible ghost in a choir forever on a cloud playing a harp. I guess the harp is visible, but the, the ghost is playing, I don't know. 
That that's, that's the picture we've been given about our, our full and complete destiny. That doesn't sound like paradise, does it? Well, it isn't. <laughs> it sounds a little bit boring to be invisible with a, with a harp in a choir forever. Not that choirs are bad. We love it. And we will be singing in the new creation. But it's missing. Genesis 2.8. A place. We were made to be connected to creation, to make our home here. Place matters. Creation matters. We cannot thrive. We cannot flourish fully apart from a place that is thriving and flourishing, which is why this is how the story ends in Revelation 21. Not with us floating up into heaven on the clouds, but with heaven coming down to earth and God dwelling with man here once again in a new creation. That's place. Thirdly, purpose. If you look um, in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man, placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Some of us in our vision of paradise, we probably included like, like untold riches. You know, we're sitting on a mountain of gold. That's our paradise. Or a mountain of money, right? Or we looked at our bank accounts like, oh, yeah, $50 billion, Paradise. I never have to work again. People can work for me, make my food, clean my stuff, feed me grapes while I'm relaxing in a hammock. Paradise. <laughs> that is not the picture, though, that is given to us here. Paradise includes work. There is no paradise without meaningful, purposeful work from God and with God. There's no flourishing. Fourthly, people. Maybe some of you, when I said picture paradise, you pictured people, a special someone, maybe? You can tell that special someone that after the service, and that will like, be really good for your relationship, you know? Um, but some of you pictured yourself in a remote location where no one can ever find you again, and that is your paradise. In verse 18, the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. And the rest of the chapter is about the creation of woman, not just about marriage, it is definitely, but more broadly, the need we have, all of us, for relationship, for people. The only thing called not good in this entire beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, is for a human being to be alone. We can only flourish in relationship, we need each other, isolation is death. For a human being. This last verse, where it says, and they were together, and they were naked and unashamed, it speaks to being fully known by others, by other people, and not ashamed, not having to hide, seeing others in their glory as image bearers and being seen for who you are. We need people. Fifthly, provision. No one in their vision of paradise pictured themselves going to their fridge, opening it up, and saying, we have no food in this house. That, that happens sometimes in our house. <laughs> or living on the streets, right, with, with, in the cold, with no money, no clothes. To be in paradise means we don't have to think about our needs. We have everything we need. We're provided for. And then some. Look at verse 9. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance. And good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden. 
and down to verse 16. You are free to eat from any of these amazing, beautiful trees of the garden. God provided humanity in the garden with everything, everything that was necessary. In paradise, there was no need, there was no hunger, there was no poverty, no worrying about if things would run out, if we were going to have enough. There was total and complete security in God providing for all their needs. There was abundant provision. And we are told that in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life. What is it? Tree of life. I think it's God's way of providing Adam and Eve with life to the fullest. Probably not just physical life. There's a lot of uh, thinking about what the tree of life, what was it, what did it provide? I think it's more than just a physical life. But it was a sacramental way, if you will, by faith of taking the gift of life as it was provided by, to its fullest, by God. So there was great provision, everything they would ever need. And lastly, the sixth thing, there was also prohibition. I got to keep the P's going. If you don't like that, we can use the word limits. <laughs> what most of us would not think we need in any kind of paradise is a prohibition or limit. Isn't paradise about no limits? I can do whatever I want. I am free. But that's exactly what is included here. In verse 16 and 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. In paradise, there is a thou shall not. One commentator summarizes this by saying, The destiny of the human creation or creature is to live in God's world with God's other creatures on God's terms. We only flourish. We only thrive. We are only who we are made to be, meant to be, on God's terms. Observing God's limits. That's, we'll talk more about this tree in another message. But what is this tree doing here? What's happening with this tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is teaching Adam and Eve this very thing, to be human, to flourish as a human being, means you have limits that are set by God. With the tree, God is saying, will you trust me and honor me with these limits? Given all that I've made, given all that I've given you, given all that you have here in this garden, will you obey me, trust me, honor this limit that it is for your good? It's just one, really just one limit, one rule in the garden. He is God and we are not. So that's a summary. That's a, the best that I can do, paint this picture of what's here in Genesis 2. Now think about your vision of paradise compared to what we just observed here from this passage. There's such wholeness here. Such completeness. I don't, I don't know if there's anything else you could imagine or think of that's missing from this picture. If you can think of something, tell me. I think whatever we could think of that is good for us, that is fully and truly flourishing in life as it should be, I can't think of anything that's missing. And here it's all made 
to go together. Life in paradise. What about life here and now? We don't need a sermon to tell us that life here and now is not paradise. When I said close your eyes and picture paradise, who pictured their life right now in this present moment? It's okay. Maybe somebody's having a good day. (laughs) You pictured yourself in a pew in this church, like right here. Well, no one said they did, but we live in Orange County. Come on. According to California.com, very reputable website, it says this, Orange County, a SoCal paradise with temperatures hovering around 75 degrees. Year-round, the cities of Orange County are sun-soaked oases tucked between large SoCal cities. There we just like threw shade at L.A. and San Diego. Like, <laughs> look at us. This is the true paradise. In O.C., in Orange County, we can be the best versions of ourselves, right? Whole persons, fit, beautiful, working on our bodies, but we're smart and spiritual too. In a beautiful place, living in a dream home, working a good job. If we have to go to work to L.A., that's okay, we'll do it, but we'll come home to Orange County to live. Kids going to great schools, there's lots of people here, there's lots of diversity, and there's plenty of provision. Lots of places to shop. (laughs) But even here in Orange County, we haven't got we haven't got there. (laughs) It hasn't become paradise for us. We're still looking for it. We're still trying to get back to what the poet John Milton said is paradise lost. Again, if you look in your bulletin at the reflection quotes. J.R. Tolkien, in a letter to his son, said, We all long for Eden. We are constantly glimpsing it, our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. We all long for Eden. We're longing for it. We're looking for it. We're looking for this. Genesis 2, what we were made for. It's what we're trying to find. It's what we're trying to get. But it's what was lost. We're all trying to get back to Genesis 2. The rest of the story of the Bible is how God makes a way back. But first we have to see what went wrong. In painting this picture of Genesis 2, I said, did I miss anything? I did miss one big thing. Nobody said it. Maybe you're thinking it. You just didn't want to shout it out in the middle of church. But you could have said, what about God? He wasn't one of those six points that you pointed out there. God was in paradise with humanity. He didn't wind it up and say, here you go, and leave the scene. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, we're told in chapter 3. He formed and shaped man. He planted a garden hands-on. He breathed life into the nostrils of this human being. He provided the trees and the abundant food and this beauty for us to freely live in and choose from. He gave us our job description and our purpose, and he said, I want you to do this with me, alongside me. And he very personally 
He very intimately showed us it's not good for man to be alone. He crafted us, creating us for relationship and interdependent community. God was not a far-off God. He was the center. He was the source. And he was the sustainer of life in paradise, of life as it should be for us. It's probably good that I didn't include God on the list of the six things because God is not the seventh thing on the list. He's on his own list all alone as Lord God. Here's what I learned about this passage this week. One of the most striking things about it is the way that God is described and named here. If you look at the text, look at this. Nine times here, if I counted it right, in chapter 2 and more in chapter 3, he is called Lord God. Okay? You're like, what's the big deal? Well, there's only one other time in the first five books of the Bible that that name is used. For God. It's not very common. Lord God. It's taking the name of God and showing us in this text, in this chapter, in paradise, just who He is. God, that part of God's name, is God's powerful creator name. It's from Genesis 1, the sovereign one and only God, the all-powerful creator of everything. He is God. He is God. There are no other gods, and we are not, so obey him. It's the only thing that makes sense. Fear him. He made all this. How could you do anything else? He is God. He is also Lord. Lord is, if you see it in all caps here, it's God's very personal and special name. Revealed to Moses when Moses said, who are you? I am Lord. It's his covenantal name. To know God as Lord is to know him personally. As the Lord who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That he is good and he can be trusted. Paradise only exists when we know our creator as Lord God. That when we obey and worship him as God and trust him as Lord, that he is good. Sin, at its essence, is the loss of personal trust that what God gives and withholds is good. Sin, at its heart and essence, is believing that we can have a paradise without God which is what Adam and Eve chose, which is what each of us choose at the heart and essence of our disobedience. But without God, paradise, it unravels, it is lost. Remnants still remain like shards of pottery, but we never get all the pieces. We never can put it back together. And God said, this is what will happen. If you try to push me out of paradise as Lord God, you shall certainly die. If you reject my limits, you will certainly die. Is this a threat? Is it a legal threat? Maybe. But you could also read it as this is naturally what would happen. If you try to push me out of your life as Lord God, you will certainly die because there is no life without me. That is life Here and now, we are living with the shards of paradise. But that's not how the story ends. There is life eternal. The rest of the Bible, as I said, is how God makes 
a way back for us. If you look again at your reflection quotes, I want to read Revelation 22. It says there, the very last chapter in the Bible, that he showed me the river of the water of life. Sounds a lot like Genesis 2.10, that a river went out from Eden. It was clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. And the tree of life was on each side of the river. The tree's back, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, for all the wounds and the sickness and the consequences of sin. And there will be no longer any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship Him because He is God. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. We will know, obey, trust, and worship Him fully and forever. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them the light and they will reign forever and ever. We will worship Him and we will work with Him. This is paradise restored. The Bible begins with this incredible picture of paradise, of life as God intended, but this paradise could be lost and was because of sin. But the Bible ends with an even more incredible picture of paradise, of life as God intended, restored, remade, even better, and this paradise will never be lost. Let me just close by asking you to think of two things here. Is this your view of God, of Jesus, the Son of God, that He wants us to have life in all its fullness as He designed, life as He created us to live, that He is committed to our wholeness as persons, and that He wants to put our broken lives and all broken things back together? Is that how you view God and the work of Jesus? That though Adam and Eve and each of us chose death, by choosing life without him, that Jesus, the Son of God, chose death to give us life with him, life as it should be. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul describes it as this. If by one's man one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paradise was lost in a garden when humanity said, not your will, but mine be done, God. Paradise was regained in another garden when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, in order that we could be brought back to life as God intended it to be. Because of Jesus, life as it should be wins and reigns, the gift of life overflows over all death and into every crack and every fissure of the brokenness of this world. This is what Jesus has done. Friends, this is what he is doing. This is one day what he will complete. Praise be to God. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I pray for us together. I realize that many of those hearing this message
Some are experiencing a this is definitely not paradise season of life. And I pray especially for those who have lost something or someone, who have had hope delayed, disappointment in life. Life is not as it should be. And there's discouragement. Discouragement because of struggle, failure. There's those who are feeling down and depressed and lost. And I pray you would lift their hearts so that they would see you. You as the one who has made us, made them for life in its fullness. And you as the one who has gone to the uttermost, has done everything to bring us back. In the life here and now, I pray that we would cling to you in trust. In the life here and now, as we wait life eternal, that you would fill us with a hope that doesn't disappoint us, knowing that this is not a life that we can earn in and of ourselves. It's not a life that we can get to because of anything we do, but it's a life that you carry us into, that if we cling to you, we will arrive. We will go back. Thank you, Jesus, for this complete and full salvation. We look to you. We trust you. And we pray all this in your powerful name. Amen.